conquest of the land. Then we have the body of the book, which is the several very prominent so-called judges. And finally, the last several chapters of the book are, are a very interesting, two interesting stories, which conclude the book of Shoftim. They're rather negative stories. The book of Shoftim has a negative cast to it in general. So those are the three parts of the book, but the, the main body of the book are these judges. And the last of the judges is in fact Shimshon. So there's a wealth of material. Uh, he is the Nazir, as it were, certainly in the Bible. What the rabbis do with Shimshon is a very interesting question, which we'll deal with hopefully after Pesach. Extremely interesting. Uh, but anyway, so we started with Shimshon last week, and there are a lot of things to say about the Shimshon narrative, the Shimshon story, the Shimshon the person. But I did want to begin this, uh, well, for you it's the morning, and for me it's the afternoon. Hopefully come back to the States next week. But uh, meanwhile, here I am. And uh, the story of Shimshon begins in chapter 13, the birth of Shimshon, which is very striking. And the main thesis of last week uh, was the following. I just repeat the thesis and then we're gonna move on. The thesis of last week, which is a very, uh, I think it's very quite a radical idea, but the point is, my point was that Shimshon is the ultimate Nazir because he's the Nazir before he's born. He's born a Nazir. In fact, his mother has certain injunctions placed upon her while she's pregnant. For example, she's not allowed to drink wine. And the point being that if she drinks wine, that her her uh, her baby or fetus or whatever is being nourished by wine. And Shimshon is already a nausea before he's born. In 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 utero, he's a he's a nausea. So therefore, uh, she's not permitted to drink wine. Uh, so he also is a nausea his entire life. He will die, famously, together with the Philistines a suicidal act, which kills himself and many of the enemy. And that's the end. So his deceiver lasts before he's born until his death. And one of the points that we have been, we've seen is that the Nazir in the Torah is time bound. The Torah spends more time describing how the Nazir completes the vow than it does telling us what the Nazir actually does. So that's, uh, that's point number one. And my second point of last week, which was the main point, was the claim that if you are, if you are a, if in the Torah you become a Nazir, so what it means is that you are a regular Jew who for some point in your life has determined to act, to take the vow of the Nazarite, to be a high priest, one might say, but it's for a limited time, then you go back to the, uh, to the way you, live, which is to find your normal place within, within society. But you can leave on a temporary basis. And we discussed that in the context of the Nazar being problematic. So breaking away from the community, which in the Torah can be seen as problematic. But in the case of Shimshon, he doesn't break away from the community. He's never in the community to begin with. That was my point. And I suggested that the reason for this is that in the story of Shimshon, which is the war against the Philistines, the people are perfectly content not to fight the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines say to uh, the Judeans later on in the Shimshon narrative, they, they, they encamp against Judah. 
And Judah says to the Philistines, why you, why you encamping against us? What do you have against us? We're, we're, we're faithful vassals to you, or Philistines. Oh, yes, you are faithful vassals, but the Shipshon, he's killed a lot of us. We want to get back at him. So the Judeans go to Shipshon, and they say, we have to hand you over. You're making trouble. Don't you know the Philistines are ruling us? That's what they say to, to Shipshon. Shipshon says, don't kill me yourself. And they promise they won't kill him. And they don't kill him. They tie him up with ropes. They hand him over. Of course, Shimshon breaks out of the bonds and he kills many Philistines. But my point is that the Judeans actually do not see Shimshon as one of themselves. He's a troublemaker. They're perfectly happy to live under the sovereignty, the control of the Philistines. And therefore, everybody's happy, except for one, except for God. God's not happy. God doesn't like the Philistines. So God is determined to fight the Philistines, but God fights through human agency. You got to find somebody who cares. Nobody cares. So what does God do? God steps away from the Jewish community and creates God's child, as it were. That is not a Jew. He is God's child. That was the, he's the ultimate Nazir, the ultimate one who breaks away, but he, he was never born into, into it. Yes, he does save the Jews because he kills the Jews' enemies. Whether they want it or not, they want it, they don't want it, want it, but he does that. But fundamentally, his allegiance is to God alone. That's the claim that I made uh, last week. Now, the claim is actually, I find it, well, I find it a compelling claim. On the other hand, I'm the one who suggested it. So my testimony doesn't mean too much over here. But I, I like the idea very much of the Nazir, the one who steps away. And this is the ultimate stepping away. And the, I made one additional point that I want to pick up with, but continue with a different point. But that in the story of Shimshon, what's very striking is that his parents have no children. They don't ask for a child. But one day an angel appears. And the angel appears in ch chapter 13 of Shoftim, Book of Judges, chapter 13. Um, and the angel uh, says to the woman, says the, uh, Hashem, uh, so the angel appears to the woman. The angel does not appear to both of them, does not appear only to the man, appears only to the woman. And the angel says, you have no children, but you will have a child. And then the angel gives the instructions, beginning in verse four, don't drink wine, don't eat anything that is unclean, literally, for you will conceive and have a, have a, have a child. No razor shall cut his hair. For Nazir Elohim, he's a Nazarite from the, from the womb, and he will be the first to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So, the, the, unlike other stories in the Bible, where the child was couple petitions to God, or the woman petitions, or the woman says something, takes the initiative, here neither one takes the initiative. Uh, the woman goes back to her husband in chapter 13, and she says to her husband, in verse number six, she says, a holy man came to me. He was very fearful, very terrible looking. I didn't ask us anything about him. And uh, he didn't tell me his name. He told, you will be conceived and, and bear a child. Don't drink wine. Don't eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite from his birth until his death. She leaves out, by the way, just Derek Hagab, the woman does not tell her husband one a little small detail. He will, he will deliver Israel from the Philistines. 
that she doesn't tell the husband. He knows nothing about that, but she does inform the husband that they will have a child. And Mardoach, the husband then prays to God. In verse number, in verse number seven, he prays to God. I'm sorry, verse number eight, prays to God. Please, say, says Mardoach to God, the, um, the, the holy man that came to us should come back and instruct us what to do. Which is a strange request because the holy man did instruct them what to do. They we instructed her what to do. Said nothing about him. He puts it in the plural. But the angel doesn't speak to him at all. The angel appears, appears to the woman, not to the man. Okay. Now we have verse number nine. So God hearkened to Madoah's cry. Very striking verse. For two reasons. First of all, Madoah had prayed, come to us, plural, teach us what to do. But the angel never spoke to Madoah in the first place. And now, after Madoah prays to God, come back again uh, and teach us what to do. God hears Manoah and sends the angel came again to the woman. Here it's actually extremely striking. First of all, she's in the field. Now being in the field is actually very interesting because in the Torah, the field can be many different things. But here's one situation of the field, which is when the Torah speaks about the rape of the of the married woman, so if so, they they're both culpable. It's a capital offense. They're both put to death. Then the Torah says, if it's in the city, then they're both culpable. Because the woman should have cried for help, and she didn't cry for help, so we assume consent. But if it's in the field, if he finds him in the field, then the man is put to death. Do nothing to the woman because maybe she cried out for help, but there's nobody to hear. So the field in that context is a place where nobody is there. And what's striking is in verse number nine, after Manoach prays that the agent should come back to them to teach us what to do, we have the angel comes to the woman. Not only comes to the woman. But comes to the woman at a, at a in a place where there is presumably few, if anybody is there, nobody else. And then the Torah, and then the book ends, and the husband was not with her. Reminds me very much of not this chapter of the Nazi, which is chapter six of Babidbar, but chapter five, the story of the Sota, which precedes it. When the man is jealous, the husband's jealous husband, who's concerned that the woman is hanging out with somebody. Well, here she's hanging out with somebody. And not only that, but those who remember biblical Hebrew, often is a sexual term. So there's a sense, a hint over here, that this child, that's what I think this is, a hint. But the, the book wants to emphasize, <coughs> he's, not born, he's not born to, in a sense, not born to Manoah. And Manoah has no interest. Born to, born to the Malach who comes to the woman. God's child, as it were. And Manoach and his wife, you might think they would want a child. Other stories in the Torah about childless couples who want a child. But in this case, there seems to be absolutely no, no, no request for a child at all. Even Manoach doesn't request it. He says, what should we teach us what to do? So this is my point that I emphasized last week. 
This is God's child. And, if, and the point of it, the deeper point is, before I stop, I want to emphasize this point. Because this, this is a very basic question. Shimshon goes on for four chapters. I would say that his behavior in the four chapters is not one which normally we would describe as the proper behavior of an observant uh, Jewish uh, person. Uh, he basically hangs, he hangs out with the Philistines and he hangs out with all kinds of Philistine women, including a prostitute later on, and he has the Lila, and then the woman of Timna, etc. So I would say his behavior is certainly not one that we typically think of in terms of righteous behavior. And the question is, what do we make of that? So I think in the biblical text, they make one thing of it. But I think in the Mishnah and the rabbinic text that we'll get to someday, they make something very different of it. There's a whole interesting move in the, in the rabbinic text, but we'll have to wait for that. In any event, the claim that I make, I, again, I'm saying claim that I make. So it's, just, it's not written explicitly. It's how I understand the text. Others may disagree. I see no evidence in the text. Certainly the first part of the text, chapters 13 and 14, uh, and even chapter, uh, even chapter 15, 13, 14, and 15, I see no evidence whatsoever that the book of Shoftim condemns Shimshon for his behaviors. I see no evidence. I don't think they, can, they condemns him at all. And that is, Shimshon has his own playbook. He has his own Shulchan Aruch. He has one basic, there's one basic thing in the Shulchan Aruch to do God's bidding, to carry out God's plan. God's plan is to kill Philistines. That's the way the book works. Shimshon is God's messenger to kill the Philistines, but he can't kill them because of what they do to Israel. He never suggests that he's harming anybody because of the situation that, that befalls Israel and they're being enslaved by the Philistines. There's that one hint in the book that that's true. So nothing explicit at all. It's always put in personal terms. I'm, I'm doing to them what they do to me. I'm avenging how they behave with me. It's never about Israel. On the other hand, indirectly, he is helping Israel kill their presumed enemy. Okay, that's what we said last week about the Nazir, about Shimshon, as far as chapter 13 is concerned. And now we get to chapter 14. So let's start off with chapter 14. Before we get to chapter 14, are there any questions of what I, what I said just now, which was basically a summary of last week, or anything else related to what we have studied so far about Shimshon, Shimshon the Nazarite? Yeah. Either but, speak uh, up or in the uh, chat. Yeah, when, when you say that, you know, the, the uh, Manoah uh, asked for the Allah to return, and then he returns to his wife. But don't say that uh, Ishto Kagufo, but she is the. So, I mean, he, he has nothing to, to do with it, that he's out of it. Right. I think that the, the, the sense I get in the chapter is that, for example, later on in the chapter, Manoach, when, the, when the angel comes to Manoach's house, Chapter in verse number twelve, um, Manoach says, "Okay, what is what is what is this child supposed to do?" Yeah. And the angel says to Manoach, 
What should he do? Everything I told your wife he should do. Uh, not to, again, not to drink wine, uh, not to come in contact with that, which not to eat things that are impure. And then the angel repeats, all that I, uh, I commanded her she should do. So it strikes me is that there is absolutely no interest by God or the angel in speaking in telling him anything. By the way, the angel does not repeat. Neither the woman nor the angel says to Manoach, we're going to have this child. He will, he will deliver Israel from Israel's enemies, which is what the angel said to the woman the first time. But when Manoach asks her, she doesn't say that, nor does the angel the second time. The angel puts it only in terms of not drinking wine or eating impure food. So it strikes me that in the chapter, there's basically Manoah's being kept in the dark. And I think one can understand it in the following way. If we see this, the structure of the family, if we see the man as the head of the household or as representing the, the public sphere, then the same way that Israel doesn't ask for a deliverer, so the same way, they're not, they're not, you expect them to ask for, for deliverance. They, elsewhere in the book, they always ask for deliverance. Here they don't. And you expect that this couple, or so with a husband, to say, I want a child. But Abraham prayed for a child. Isaac pray, uh, prays for himself and Rebecca, a child. But, um, you know, but Noah doesn't, nor, or, nor does his wife. So it's part of the same picture over here. It's really not about say, the creation of Shimshon. It's not about or even about someone I claim. Uh, I think further in the, to the chapter, I could demonstrate it even better. Now, but Noah is someone who has no understanding on any level. Um, but that's we'll have to take that for now. Uh, is there anybody else who has a comment or question? I do. Um, does do you think she, uh, if she hasn't told her husband, has she ever told Shimshon? I mean, does Shimshon have any sense of what his ultimate, you know, mandate is? Okay, so I will deal with that. That is a very central question. Okay, and it's a wonderful question. I I was I will deal with that as soon as we get to chapter fourteen. It's not totally clear. I I. It's a wonderful question. I, my instincts tells me that he has he has a sense, but that's my instincts. I think you can read the text both ways, but I'll but I'll, I'll get to that question. That's very thank you for the question. It's a very basic question, and I will deal with it shortly. So we'll, if I, if I don't remind me, but I will deal with it very very soon because it hinges on one verse, I think. And of course, depending on how much he knows or doesn't know. We'll have a different picture of Shimshon. If he doesn't know and spends his life just, you know, just, just with these various, various Philistine women, we'll have one view of Shimshon. But if we think that he's actually uh, knows his mission and he's going into, you know, he goes into the world of the Philistines to carry out the mission, which is what I think actually, then uh, we have a very different view of Shimshon. He's doing God's bidding. You know what it's like? Look, we know the stories that was. So you have a, you have a country. You have, you have you have spies. I'm in Israel now. There's the Mossad. Okay, mm -hmm. they have a very good reputation. I hope it's true. But anyway, they have a good reputation. But if you're going to infiltrate into the enemy's camp, you have to do all kinds of stuff. 
you look for weaknesses, you look for all kinds of things. And it's a pretty dirty business, actually, by definition. You know, you're misleading people, you're preying on their weaknesses, you're doing things that no, no uh, modest person or chaste person would ever do. I mean, you know, you play all kinds of games. And you're dealing with, for the most part, people that are willing to sell out their own people. So it's about getting information any, any way you can get it. Now, those people, they're really heroic in a sense because they do get necessary information which allows many people to be, to be safer. On the other hand, the way they are forced to live and sometimes for many, many years is very problematic. They're going into it knowing that basically. And uh, so that's the question of Shimshon. I, 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 my instincts tell me that he, he has a sense. He knows he's doing God's work. Um, I think we I think we can see that later on. That that's I think the more plausible reading. But I'll, but I'll get back to it. Uh, is there anybody else who has a comment or question now? Um, Sandra asked in the chat um, if we'll be discussing Shmuel Hasmanazir at any point. Uh, we will be. We will be discussing Shmuel. We'll certainly discuss Shmuel in the Mishnah, because in the Mishnah. Actually, in the, in the tractate, this whole tractate called Tractate Nazir, and the last Mishnah in Tractate Nazir is about Shmuel. So Shimshon in, in, in Tractate Nazir, there are three, three, three personalities or three people that play a role in the Mishnah of of, of Masechet Nazir. What is Shimshon? Obviously, what is Shmuel? It's the last Mishnah. Then there's a third person who the Mishnah wants to read as a Nazir. Uh, there's certainly no sense that he's a Nazir. I mean, in a certain way, he is a Nazir. I, I write about it in my book, and that's Avshalom. Because we know he has very long hair and he cuts it period, he cuts it once a year or whatever. So those are the three people: Avshalom, Shibshod, and uh, Shmuel. Those are the three people that the Mishnah will discuss in terms of the Nazarite, but we will have to wait for the for the Mishnah. Will we, uh, uh, Rabbi, we uh, discuss Joseph at all, Nazir Echaz? Uh, well, we discussed him a little bit already, and we will discuss him some more. In fact, I may even get to it today. Okay. Because the Joseph story, Joseph story and the Shimshon story have many, many parallels. One of them I'll talk about today, which is very central to the Shimshon story. Hey, let's, now, let's begin now with chapter 14. And um, so it's like this. So Shimshon, fine. Shimshon is has grown up at the end of chapter 13. And um, the Spirit of God is moving him. And now in chapter 14, So Shimshon, for whatever reason, goes to Timnah. And he sees there a woman, a Philistine woman in Timnah. So Shimshon says, I found a, I've seen a woman in Timna. He talks to his parents, please arrange the marriage. Get her for me as a wife. Says this to his mother and his father. So his father and mother say to him, Says what? There's no, no daughters of your own kinsmen? Find a Jewish woman amongst all your people. You want to take a wife with uncircumcised Philistines? 
What do you want to get involved with the Philistines for? And now we have Shimshon's response. Shimshon's response is, Vayoma Shimshon el Aviv otokachwi ki hi Yoshua b'yedai. Take her for me, says Shimshon, ki hi Yoshua b'yedai, for she is Yoshua b'yedai. Here they translate, she pleases me. But I would actually, in this case, that is the literal translation, but I would translate a little differently, which is, she suits me. Now the point is, in the, in the most recent book I have called Malchut Adam, it's in Hebrew, and it's about kingship in the Bible through the prism of the book of Shmuel. It has many readings of Sefer Shmuel. Now, in that book, I have the following observation that I make about eight, chapter 18 of Shmuel Aleph, which is this. That's the chapter in which King Saul, he wants to kill David. But the way he figures he'll kill David is this. He, he has essentially promised one of his daughters to the one who kills Goliath. And David has killed Goliath in chapter 17. So Shaul goes to David and says, listen, I'll give you my daughter. Um, I'll give you my daughter and uh, on condition that you, uh, that you fight the wars of God. So David doesn't do that. David delays and she's given it off to somebody else. He says to Saul, I don't think I'm worthy to marry. You know, I'm not, who am I to marry your daughter? Okay. But Saul has another daughter. And he says, her name is Michal. Michal loves David. That's daughter number two. That's the younger daughter. And, and Saul is told this by Yishar B'yedei Shaul and the matter was pleasing in Saul's eyes. So Saul speaks to his people. Go back to David and tell David you can marry the other daughter. And David says, listen, um, I'm just a poor guy. So Saul goes back to David. Tell David, we don't care about a dowry. Kill, kill for me a hundred Philistines. And then it says, David, and the matter was pleasing in David's eyes, and he goes out and he kills 200 Philistines. Now, in that chapter, there are many, many, many interesting features to that chapter. But one of the points that I put, one thing I point out about that chapter is the contrast between two words or two expressions. One expression is love. Michal loves David. She loves David. It's unusual, actually, to have that when the woman loves the man, but that's what it says. Then we have another term, which is yashar b'edav. It is pleasing in his eyes or, or suitable in his eyes. And that's said of Saul, when he hears that Michal loves David, and that's said of David, who agrees to kill 100 Philistines, actually kills 200, in order to secure Saul's daughter. And the point that I made is the contrast between those two. Because Ahava, love, is one thing. That's an emotion. Michal actually loves David. But Sam, but Saul and David, they have a, there's a different description of Saul and David. That is Yashar B'Edai. I would say in our terminology, that sort of works for them. Because what does Saul want to do? Saul wants to get David killed. So Saul figures, oh good, 
she'll, 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 she says it, he says it explicitly. She'll pretty nasty about his own daughter. He, he wants plans to turn his daughter into a widow a few months in, 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 into, into marriage. As far as David is concerned, he refuses to marry the first one, but he but the second one is Yashar Bi'enav. And what is the difference between the first daughter and the second daughter, to the older daughter and the younger daughter? The difference is this, that the condition of marrying the older daughter was like the wars of God. Well, the wars of God can go on forever. They're, all, they're always holy wars. So that's a, a never-ending commitment. And one day, you're going to get killed. Fight, Be a great warrior and fight the wars of God. Endanger yourself constantly. You know, that's, a, that, that's not a winning proposition for David. But when Saul comes back with the second offer, kill me a hundred Philistines, says David to himself, that much I can do. I'll get me some, some of my boys. We'll go out kill 100 Philistines, and I will have fulfilled my condition. So therefore, Yashar be enough. And I point out in the book that you have the same expression over here. Shimshon said to his father, take that one for me. She is pleasing in my eyes. I would say she suits my purposes. Suits my purposes mean, why does he want to marry the Philistine woman? What's wrong with the, uh, with the Jewish women? Nothing. But the Jewish women have no value for Shimshon because he can't, he's not going to, because he's not going to kill the Philistines defending the Jews. He has to kill the Philistines in a kind of internal Philistine struggle. He has to get inside the Philistine community. And the one way he's going to do that is through this woman. And some way through this woman, she will be the one who will make it possible for him to kill the Philistines. So that's the first point. If, 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 if you accept this interpretation, it means that from day one, he has his plan out. It's not, he's not oblivious to the plan. He's very aware of the plan. That's verse number three. And then we come to the next verse. Verse number four. His father and mother did not know and this is from God. And then, for he was seeking a pretext against the Philistines. Who was seeking a pretext? Was God seeking a pretext? Or was Samson's pretext? It's really not that clear, but I would say that I would I, I read these two verses as verse number one. I want to marry the Philistine woman. She suits my purposes. He Yashrabi I die, and I said is good evidence. The contrast between Ahava and Yashrabi I die. He's going to use her. It's not nice, but think of it as a kind of spy. That's what these spies do. All kinds of people do this, and in fact, for he Samson is seeking a pretext in order to carry out God's will. This is part of God's plan. But I believe that Samson is a, a winning accomplice to God over here. He's being sent out. One could read it otherwise. But I mean, I, I believe you could read it this way, that Shimshon from the beginning is seeking a pretext. But the question is still a very good question. And this, these two verses are critical. 
So I've often by thought about it, but you know, again, it's, it's an interesting question. And then of course it adds, at that time, the Philistines ruled Israel. Again, repeating what we know, the Philistines ruled Israel and we discover later on, and the Israelites are perfectly happy with that. Or they're happy enough not to rebel. And they would resent Samson, right? In other words, you can't fight the Philistines as, as an Israelite. That's the point of the verse. Because the Israelites don't want to fight the Philistines. So therefore, Shem should ask to leave Israel and go reside amongst the Philistines to carry out God's plan. He needs a pretext. And the pretext will be the marriage. Okay, now let me uh, stop you for one moment. If any comments or questions, I'll take them right now. If not, we'll continue. All right. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. Nothing? Okay. Let's continue. Okay, fine. So meanwhile, Shipshot uh, comes down to Timna. And actually, then we have, of course, the story. When he comes, he comes to the vineyards of, of, of Karme Timnata. He comes to the vineyards by Yavo, actually, they came to the vineyards of Timna. And behold, a, a grown lion came roaring at him. Now, what's interesting is the text as we have it, the English translation tries to change it. But the text we have is they, plural, by your vocal, they, means his father, his mother, and, and Shimshon, came to the vineyards of Timna. And then it says, behold, a, a, a grown lion came roaring at him. Where are the mother and father? This is why the Medrash says, well, the mother and father aren't there. Because when they came to the, car, to, to the, to the vineyards of Timna, since Shimshon is not allowed to eat grapes or drink wine, or wine products. That's what it says about the nausea. So the bedroom says that's when they separated their ways. Maybe they walked through the vineyard. And when Shemshul came to the vineyard, he walked around it. The Talmud has an expression. You tell the Nazarite to walk around the vineyard. <clears throat> in other words, don't put yourself in a situation of temptation. Lead us not a two, temp a two temptation, right? We say in the morning, Dominic, out to be in the day, so young. It's in the morning prayers. Don't bring me to a place of temptation. In our prayers, daily prayers. So that's why Shimshon's alone when the lion comes against him. And the Spirit of God comes over him in the next verse, in verse number six, and he rips up the lion, and nobody knows about it, and he doesn't tell his parents. That is important. In other words, you see over here already, when you don't confide in somebody, you're creating a certain distance. He doesn't tell his parents oh, this, this amazing situation, and he has this incredible strength comes over him suddenly. He can even rip a lion to pieces. That's amazing. Now he goes down and speaks to the woman, Vatishar Again, she pleased him. I would say she is the one who is who suits his purposes. Again, now let's continue. You have to scroll down. Now he comes back later and he sees the he sees the carcass of the lion in verse number eight. And behold, inside the lion's skeleton he finds a swarm of bees and honey. And he takes this honey, he brings it to his parents, and once again, but he didn't tell them that he found the honey in the, out of the lion's skeleton, the lion's carcass. Notice how the emphasis here is on not telling the parents. Keeps them in the dark. 
So they're not part of this. It's Shimshon again in the Philistines. That's the picture over here. Anyway, so Shimshon now is going to marry this woman. He, he make, he's going to make a, a feast. Sheva brachas, right? He's going to make a party. In fact, it lasts for seven days. So when they see Shimshon coming in verse number 11, they take 30 companions to be with him. It's like a real a wedding party. And now we have in verse number 12, this is very important. If you if you can uh, get give me the right, I'll give you thirty tunics and thirty sets of clothing. I guess that means one two for each person. So a tunic and a set of clothing for all thirty. Get thirty people there. But if you can't, in the next verse, if you can't, you have to give me thirty tunics and thirty sets of clothing. Go ahead, ask your riddle, and we will listen. So this is very interesting here. Shibshon is a riddler. Sits down at the meal. These are the 30 guests. The wedding party of seven days, right? We have seven-day wedding party. Seven brachas, seven days. And here's his riddle. From that which usually eats, ocheo came out food. And from Oz, from the powerful one, from the strong one, came out something sweet. And they can't, what is this? What is, they can't solve the riddle. Of course, it relates to his experience with the lion. He killed the lion. And inside the lion, he finds a beehive and the honey. And they can't solve the riddle. Fine. So it comes down to the last day, the next verse. Seduce your husband. Tell us the solution to the riddle. Lest we burn you and your father's house down. I know what kind of guests you invite to your weddings, but these are not the people I wanted my guests. In any event, uh, so these are not very good guests, you know? How are your shenu karata bladu halo? Did you invite us here to impoverish us? What is this? So this is what they, the threat. So they threatened, they threatened the woman and they threatened her father. His Shimshon's wife and his, and his mechuta, they're threatening over here. But she's under the threat penalty of death. So now we have the next verse. Again, scroll down. So Mrs. Shimshon said, look, you hate me, you don't love me. You didn't, uh, you, 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 I, you don't want to tell my people, right? But you didn't even tell me the, the solution. Again, a very striking response. If I don't tell my own parents, my own father and mother, should I tell you? So it's pretty clear, you know, the Torah says what? Therefore, a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. But over here, he says, no, I didn't tell my own parents. Why would I tell you? That's his solution. So he's not going to tell the answer to the riddle. And now we scroll down some more. 
She's crying for the seven days. The, 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 the dates of art don't work out so well over here, but it doesn't matter for our purposes. Afterwards, she nags him for seven days. And finally, he tells her, on the last day, she reveals the riddle to her countrymen. Before sunset. What is stronger than a lion and what is uh, sweeter than honey? If you hadn't plowed my heifer, referring to his wife, you would not have figured out the solution. You would not have guessed my riddle. So I'll come back to the riddles in a second. The riddles are very central to the Shimshom story. And this is right here, you have the first riddle. And once again, it's the wife who is telling them the riddle. And now what happens next? Let's me scroll down some more. So the Spirit of God comes over him. He won't go down to Ashkelon, which is one of the Philistine cities. He kills 30 of its men, takes their clothing, and he gives the clothing to those who have answered the riddle, and he left it arranged for his father's house. And the next verse says, and then Shimshon's wife is given to, to, one, of, uh, to one of the so-called wedding companions. So the wife is now given to someone else. Now let's get to, let's understand the story over here. So effectively what Shimshon has just done, he's killed 30 Philistines as a response to the fact that the 30 so-called friends have uh, caused his wife to betray her trust, he calls his wife a heifer, and So I wanted to pause over here and reflect upon this business of the uh, of the of the riddle. Now the riddle plays a very important role in the Shimshon story, not just over here, but later on we also have Shimshon in conjunction with with a with a with a, a riddle. And I wanted to reflect upon this idea. Obviously, it's very significant. And the question is, what does it signify? So I have a suggestion to make about the riddle. What is the point of a riddle? The point of a riddle is, let's say the case over here. The point of the riddle is that Shimshon knows something that nobody else knows. Nobody. He doesn't tell his parents. Notice the emphasis on not telling. I didn't tell my own parents, I'm going to tell you. He doesn't tell his parents about the lion. He doesn't tell his parents about the honey. He doesn't tell his parents about the real reason that he is going to the land of the Philistines. They suit his purposes. Uh, he keeps them in the dark. And in point of fact, this idea of having a kind of secret knowledge that no one else has. It reminds me very much of the many other parallels the story of Joseph. Joseph knows something other people don't know. That's the point of Joseph. He has these dreams. In the case of Joseph, it's not riddles, but it's dreams. And the dreams turn out to be to, to be true. It's not just that's just dreams. Joseph, Joseph makes them come true, actually. 
And Joseph also has, is an interpreter of dreams. Joseph can understand things that other people can't understand. He has his own secret knowledge. And in the case of Shimshon and Joseph, it strikes me that it's related to the fact that Shimshon has his own, his own mission, his own separate mission. He's not part of Israel's mission directly, but he's part of God's mission to fight God's enemies. And that is connected to the idea that he knows something no one else can know. And I would say he shares a knowledge with God. Only God has this knowledge. So the, the idea of having a kind of intimate connection with God in the sense that they have a shared secret. That is at the core, I think, of the Shimshon story. And that's, of course, related to Shimshon's mission. So what Shimshon actually can't do, he can't give away the secret. Now, over here, ostensibly, the, the riddle is about a lion and honey. But one can easily read the riddle as relating to Shimshon himself. And I don't mean because he killed the lion, which is also amazing, but because it means that someone who, all the out, the lion is the fiercest creature. But we don't think of the lion as being very sweet necessarily. We see the lion as a carnivore, a, a marauder, a plunderer, killer. But the point of this lion, when he comes back and will strike Shimshon, is that here you have this lion, but inside the lion there's this incredible sweetness. And it strikes me that Shimshon, and I don't think we're going too far with this, that Shimshon, the lion could actually represent Shimshon himself. So Shimshon has this kind of intimate link to God, as we will see. But outwardly, what is he? He's a, he's a, he's a person of monstrous strength. So outwardly, he's this terrifying creature. But there is a certain internal sweetness to Shimshon. And that's, I think, why the, the riddles are so incredibly significant over here because they say something about Shimshon himself. And I would add one last detail over here to this point, that what Shimshon can't do actually, what he is forbidden to do is to fall in love. Because if you're actually in love, then inevitably you will share secrets. Now, when it comes to the woman of Timna, the language that the book uses is Yashar Bi'edav. As I pointed out in the story of David, there it means she suits my purposes. I mean, it's a bad story, but it's, it's a terrible story. Woman's in love, she loves David, but it's not reciprocated from day one. He's, he's, gonna, he's gonna use her to, to, to advance his political place. And her father wants to use her to get her husband killed. So she's in love. And that's the story of Michal in the book of Shmuel. But over here, Shimshon's okay because there's no love over here. He's using her, she is his wife, there's this feigned anger, maybe he is angry, but the fact of the matter is, Yashar Bi'edav, but that's chapter 14. When you get to chapter 16, chapter 16, verse number, uh, was it four or five? Chapter 16, verse number four. Vayachri chayn, vayyahav isha benachal sorei, ushmar delilwa. In chapter 16, down uh, another verse, yes. He loved, he fell in love with a woman in Nachal Sobek. Her name was Delilah, Delilah, in chapter, in verse uh, number uh, four of chapter 16. So notice over here the contrast between Yashar Bi'enov of chapter 14 and Ahava of chapter 16. Exactly the contrast that I pointed out in chapter 18 of Shmuel. 
where David and Saul, Yashar Biedav, the marriage is suited, suited, suitable for them. It works well for them, for their own separate reasons. In contrast to Michal, who loves David. There's no ulterior motive. She loves him. So the danger, Delilah is going to be a big danger because he loves Delilah. Maybe next time we'll talk about Delilah. Delilah wants to, of course, Delilah is a paid, she's the spy actually. Delilah is being paid to get information. And she's going to try to get the information. And what chapter 16 is about is Samson's struggle to not reveal the truth. If he reveals the truth, he's going to lose his power. The cutting of the hair is not what causes him to lose his, his power, really. The cutting of the hair will be a symbolic representation of the fact that he has broken the bond with God. It's the bond with God which gives him the power. And there's this struggle in chapter 16, because on one hand, she wants to know, and he says he loves her. He doesn't have good taste in women, I gotta say that much, but he does love her. And on the other hand, he has he can't reveal the truth. So there's this story in chapter 16, we'll get to it, about he keeps getting closer to telling the truth, but he doesn't actually tell the truth. At the end, he does reveal the secret. So the idea of having secret knowledge, in the case of Joseph, it's dreams. It's dreams, interpretation of dreams. In the case of Samson, it's his own particular relationship to God. And that's reflected in the uh, it's reflected in the uh, in, 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 in the riddle. Samson is a riddler. And by the way, before I stop and take comments or questions, there's another riddle that we find in the Samson story, not just in chapter 14. There's also a riddle in chapter 15. At the end of chapter 15, after Shimshon kills the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, he kills many Philistines. At the end of chapter 15, in verse number 16, after he killed all these Philistines, by Yom HaShimshon, ha-chamar, chamar, chamar what does that mean? Bilachi ha-chamar, chamar, chamar it's a wonderful. He is with the with the bone of a right hamor donkey ass whatever hamor hamorotayim. What does hamor hamorotayim mean? You have that in the Torah. It means piles and piles. The frogs in the second plague in Egypt, but yitz ruotam chamorim chamorim mativasha ares. They piled them up in piles. So the, the riddle, his ship shows riddle. Let me tell you, what does this mean? That's the riddle. The riddle plays off the word chamar because the word chamar has two different meanings. It means a chamar, the animal, but it means chamar, chamar, piles and piles. So the riddle is, what does this mean? What is, what is the riddle? And once again, the solution to the riddle is something in ship shows own life. It means that the chamor chamorotayim is not related to the word chamor donkey, but rather piles and piles. It, re it reflects, it refers to what Shimshon has thus done. With the lechi chamor, I created piles of piles of corpses, piles of victims of my great strength. When I broke out of the chains, the bonds, I was tied up. I broke out of the bonds. I killed all these Philistines and I piled them in piles. In other words, if you're having verse number 16 of chapter 15, 
you have both a riddle and you have here Shimshon providing the solution to the riddle. It's like Joseph. Joseph is both a dreamer. He has his own dreams, but he's also an, an, an interpreter of dreams. He interprets the dreams of the baker, the butler, and Pharaoh's dreams. So Joseph is both, and so is Shimshon. He's a riddler in each case, and I believe I may have mentioned this last week, but I want to mention this point as well, that when someone tells you a riddle, riddler, I think what, what the Batman story is riddler, the riddler to riddle something, so he's having the so-and-so was riddled with bullets, you can read sometimes. To riddle is a hostile act, actually. Because what you're really saying is, I know something you don't know. That's what a riddle means. I, I know something you don't know. And here, I am. But in the case of well, that's exactly the point. They don't like the dreams, and they don't like the, the fact that he tells them the dreams. Because what, what do the dreams say in effect? Well, they say you're going to bow down to me. They don't like that either. But even beyond that, what, what makes you so special? I know something you don't know. That's what that's, that's, that lies behind the Joseph story. It happens to be true. Not only does he know it, he actually makes it come true. But here, once again, so I would connect the dreams of Joseph and the interpretation of Joseph to the riddles of Shimshon and the interpretation of Shimshon. And what they have in common is clear. They are both on a mission. Shimshon is obviously on a mission to kill God's enemies, despite the Jews, I would say, despite the Jews. And Joseph is on a mission. What is Joseph's mission? Well, Joseph thinks the mission is to save the family, to feed the world, to feed the Egyptians. And that is certainly true. That's part of his mission. But he has another mission, which he doesn't really understand till the end of his life, which is to bring all of Israel down to Egypt and to begin the years of suffering as part of a covenantal process. He only realizes that the very end, which is God should redeem us someday. But until that point, he says, look, I was here to save the family. There's a famine to save Egypt, to save the world. That's my mission. That's why I'm down here. So it's interesting that in the case of Shimshon and Joseph, here's another interesting parallel between Shimshon and Joseph. It's an obvious one, but I never actually formulated it before. Their missions, both the mission of Joseph and the mission of Shimshon are carried out outside the land in exile. Shimshon goes amongst the Philistines. Shimshon lives, it's a self-exile in the case of, of Shimshon. In the case of Joseph, it's not a self-exile. To be clear, during most of his life, he has ever trying to go back. For he named his eldest son Menashe and said, forgetfulness. God has enabled me to forget my past and my father's house. Okay. Let me take comments. How much time do we have left? What time is it now? We have three minutes. Oh, we do. Okay. Are there any comments or questions about what we saw today? The thing about the ship and Joseph, I'll take somebody else to show you Joseph, by the way, and I'll take a comment or question. The Joseph story is unique. It's, it's if you, I'm actually teaching Joseph now. It feels completely different than anything else. It's really like a novel. It has a different feel to it, a different pace to it, a different, a different, different kinds of speeches. It's much more psychological. Um, I mean, it's fully integrated into Sefer Breshit. That's it. But but it does feel different. And the Shimshon story is totally different. There's nobody in the Bible like like Shimshon, not even close. 
this idea of this human with supernatural strength, which is given to him prior to his birth, basically, who lives totally apart from his people. He's the Nazarite, who is the ultimate Nazarite. I'm going to make one last point about Shimshon. We'll come back to this when we get to the mission and everything. But we, let me state the obvious. Apart from the fact that Shimshon is not a Nazarite for a set amount of days, but a Nazarite for his whole life, that's one difference. Then there's even a more basic difference between Shimshon and all the other Nazirim. The Mishnah picks this up. But normally, if you become a Nazarite, it's a related point. When you become a Nazarite, you become a Nazarite by taking a vow. The Nazarite is the Nazarite vow. You accept upon yourself to be a Nazarite. Shimshon never took a vow. First, he was a Nazarite before he's born. He's born a Nazarite. The angel goes to the mother because while she's pregnant, she has to observe certain things. That's one of the reasons. She can't drink wine. She can't come in to eat any imp impure food. For your son shall be a Nazarite. That's another the third difference as well. But that difference is very important to remember. Because in the Mishnah, the Talmud, that's central. The Nazarite is a Nazarite as a function of a vow. Shimshon is not. That's the difference. Maimonides says, for this reason, Shimshon isn't really a Nazarite. It's different. Because he never took a vow. It's the Rambam. It says it up front. That's very striking. Okay, I'll take one or two questions. If anybody has a question, we'll stop at this point. Yeah, go ahead. Um, is it uh, is it possible to interpret the uh, the honey inside of the of the of the mule as actually uh, representing uh, the closeness to God? That that is the sweetness. In other words, that he's a Nazarite in the sense of what you uh, shown previously that the goal of a Nazir is to be individually close to God, like a Kohen Gadol, and uh, a here he is, uh, uh, whether it's willingly or not, is designated as uh, 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 being close to God until he no longer can be. Yes, I think that's an excellent point. And actually, I wanted to start with that next week. Uh, I want, it's not, I mean, I think what's what's interesting here, and I think it's very much connected to what you're saying, that the Torah calls, Torah is one word for the Nazir, the Nazir is Kadosh. The Ramban thought the Nazir is the ultimate holy person. And what I wanted to reflect on Next is, is holiness in some does it entail having a relationship with, with, with the divine that nobody else knows about? Is there something like that? Is there something that there's something special about every person that is so private and so intimate with God that it excludes anybody else? I suspect the answer to that is yes. But I didn't want to explore that a bit next week. And it's very, it, I think that's true about Shimshon. I think that in the case of Shimshon, look, in the book of Judges, the only person who actually prays, as far as I can see, in the book of Shoftim is Shimshon. He prays twice. And that is unusual. We'll, we'll get to that. But this, I think, a very interesting question because the Nazir in the Chumash is called Kadosh. And this being, being Kadosh means that in some sense means being separate. Does it mean the ultimate? Kedusha in some way or other entails 
being being separate from everybody actually and having this intimate link with God, which only God can, can know and only the person knows and, and no one else can know it. So maybe in that sense, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's, I wanted to, to, to throw that question out next week. Thanks for that comment. I think there's a lot to that actually, that, that connection. Is there anybody else who has something to say? Okay, we'll we'll stop at this point. Okay, look forward to next week. Uh, okay, thank you all. Thank, thank you, you. Thank Robert you. Silber. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Uh, looking forward thank to seeing you. you next week or at one of uh, Drisha's many offerings. Until then. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>